Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Right-wing populism is on the rise across the globe. The US, Brazil, India, Italy, Austria, Hungary and Poland have radical right-wing politicians as leaders or in government. Far-right parties have also chalked up major electoral triumphs in countries like Sweden, France and Germany. And the UK's vote to leave the EU was a decision encouraged in part by populist rhetoric. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon, a former Trump strategist, has relocated to Brussels and is attempting to mobilise a hard-right network in the coming European parliamentary elections. In this episode of LSEIQ, Joanna Bale asks, should we fear the rise of the far-right? We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 They're scared of the unity I bring to people and the opposition I bring to Islam. And currently they wish to do anything they can, anything they can to pave the way for Islam to spread across our country. Let them call you racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Let them call you nativist. Wear it as a badge of honor. Because every day we get stronger and they get weaker. In case you hadn't guessed, you were listening to Donald Trump, the British far-right activist Tommy Robinson, and finally Steve Bannon, addressing last year's annual congress of Marine Le Pen's National Front in France. Professor Matthew Feldman is director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right and a UK government advisor on extremism. I asked him how Bannon's mission to unite right-wing populist parties across Europe was going. Well, he's having more trouble than he thought, I think, is the first thing I would suggest. Um, I think that there is an American exceptionalism that operates in someone like Steve Bannon and certainly Donald Trump that says these kind of, you know, slightly effeminate Europeans, if they can only learn from the Americans. What we're finding in reality is that most of them don't want Steve Bannon's help. They find him a bit, you know, frankly, coarse and and not very helpful. Um, It's also been reported recently that many of these countries can't legally take Steve Bannon's help because of uh, election law. So does he want to be the Svengali? Does he want to be the radical right's brain and the person who is, you know, sort of fingers and all those pies? Yes, absolutely. Are we potentially doing his job for him by talking about him all the time as the potential Trump's brain Svengali type finger? Maybe. I haven't seen a single piece of evidence that has shown that he comes on board and turns around a party. In fact, you could make the argument he didn't even necessarily turn around Trump's campaign. Um, Trump was doing just fine before Bannon came along, certainly shaped the message, and there was a partnership between his organization, Breitbart and Donald Trump. Although election law in some countries bans or restricts foreign funding and assistance, in others it's allowed. Simon Hicks is Professor of Political Science and Pro-Director of Research at LSE. I asked him why the European right would not want to unite behind an extremely wealthy global figure like Steve Bannon. He'd love there to be a European-wide organisation that he could fund and coordinate. It's much harder than I think he thought. In the, the, the different 
populist right movements around Europe are deeply suspicious of each other. They, they don't want to be associated with each other. So in a sense, you've got different stripes. So in, in Scandinavia, you had populist right parties who, who uh, are more anti-social democrat or the tr social democratic traditions in Scandinavia, but they, would, they, don't, they don't want to be seen to be associated with Marine Le Pen, who Mar they think of Marine Le Pen as, as clearly racist or xenophobic. And they, in Scandinavia, they don't want to be seen to be like that. They might be against immigration, but more because they, they think that's pressure on the Scandinavian welfare state. So that's one sort of stripe. And then, and then you have other sorts of stripes, like in the Benelux, where you have the populist right that's a more libertarian right. So Wilders will say, you know, I don't like Islam because they don't like gay marriage. <laughs> and they, they, if they're coming to Holland, they should accept that we are a liberal society. So, he, you know, it, although he has actually been willing to go in with, with Marine Le Pen. Simon is referring here to Geert Wilders, leader of the Party for Freedom in Holland, whose trademark is his fierce anti-Islam rhetoric. They all think that they don't want to be tainted with the, 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 how the other parties are perceived in their own in public. And this has prevented there to be a, a coordinated radical right movement around Europe. So we have in, in the European Parliament right now, we have three different parties on the, on the right in the European Parliament. We have a European Conservatives and Reformists, which, although the British Conservatives sit in that group, it's largely made up of, of more nationalist conservative parties. And all the Scandinavian populist parties are now members of that party. We then have the European Free, you know, Freedom and Democracy Group, which is, uh, which is where UKIP sits, and also Five Star Movement in Italy. And they're more, a bit more libertarian, a bit anti-European because they think Europe is a superstate. And then you have the more really radical right, more openly racist parties that sit in the Europe of Nations and Freedoms, the ENF party, which is led by Le Pen. And so these three groups, if they could get their act together, they could form a really powerful block of about 30% of the MEPs, but they can't get their act together. They've never been able to get their act together in, in 40 or 50 years in, in Europe, and I don't see them getting their act together anytime soon. And Steve Bannon's not the one to do that. Steve Bannon is not the one to do that. I think, you know, he, he's seen as an American coming in and interfering. Uh, yes, they'd like to have money that might come from US hedge funds, but I don't think they want necessarily Steve Bannon to be interfering and telling them what to do. Marta Lorimer is a researcher at LSE's European Institute. I asked her why right-wing populism has gained so much momentum. Is it to do with immigration, uh, terrorism or the financial crisis, or is it something different, do you think? I think it's something quite different because, of course, we can think of the financial crisis and the immigration crisis as something that made their positions a lot more salient. But I think we need to look at the change as happening before that. So I would say on one side, we need to look at what the mainstream parties have been doing. So in many cases, parties of the mainstream right have started co-opting elements of the far right's agenda. Um, adopting much stronger positions um, on immigration, for example. And secondly, and especially in the last few years, the media have also started increasing their coverage of these movements. Um, so in other words, they have gained a lot in terms of visibility as well. Uh, voters have stopped voting for the traditional parties and they are changing who they vote for. There have, of course, been deep changes within Western societies um, throughout the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and, but one thing that is probably very important is the, the parties themselves. So far-right parties are actually makers of their own success. 
um, in, since the 1980s when they started becoming more powerful, they have also become a lot more organized and a lot more successful in terms of their own campaigning. Sarah Khan is Britain's first counter-extremism commissioner. Theresa May appointed her in the wake of the Manchester Arena terrorist bombing, which killed 22 people attending an Ariana Grande concert. She's investigating ways of tackling both Islamic and far-right extremism in the UK and believes the two are linked. Well, I think some of the research has made clear that through reciprocal radicalisation, Islamist-inspired terrorism and extremism is feeding the far-right. We saw with... With the, with the terrorist incidents last year, how every time there, there was an Islamist uh, terrorist attack, we saw a rise in anti-Muslim hatred and anti-Muslim sentiment, particularly online, but also in terms of hate crime as well, spikes in attacks levelled at Muslims. So I think that's clearly a concern. Um, and we, we see how different forms of extremism feed each other. Islamist extremism feeds the far right and the far right often feeds Islamist extremism as well, or how young people, if, they're, if, they, if they are a victim of um, an anti-Muslim attack, that can make them more vulnerable to the narratives of Islamist extremists. And so looking at that, I think, is really, really important. Sarah has travelled Britain, speaking to youth workers, faith groups, academics and other experts to better understand the challenges of extremism. She says that the role of social media is key. So I've visited around 13 different towns and cities, and in every area that I visited, concerns about far-right extremism were, were raised with me, whether it was youth workers from Portsmouth or up in Newcastle expressing concerns about how young people are deliberately being targeted by far-right activists um, and social media, the role that social media is, is, is having as well in terms of normalising and mainstreaming far-right views. Um, a huge range of concerns that activists and uh, counter-extremists have also been sharing with me. So in certain parts of the country we're seeing very much a prolific rise of the far-right, so in places like Wales, uh, the North East, Yorkshire, for example, are areas that I've heard about uh, the rise of far-right extremism as well. And I think, so for me, what I'm, I'm, what I'm seeing is, you know, I feel we are at the beginning of a new wave of far-right extremism in our country, but not just a new wave, but a new breed of the far-right as well. I, you know, I think it's often we look at the time of the 70s and the 80s and we see the rise of the National Front. I think we're now li seeing, a, we're living a time actually where we're seeing far-right activists um, professionalised, they've become a lot more modernised, um, the, their use of social media, the way they now exploit local tensions to try and recruit and, 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 uh, and mainstream their views is really telling to me and I've seen that in quite a number of different cities and so those are very very real concerns that we're seeing alongside other indicators I think, indicators such as as we saw uh, recently um, the government announcing the fact that there's been a 36% increase in referrals to prevent for far-right extremism. We're seeing increasing rates of hate crime as well. Um, so I think these indicators are also telling us a picture that far-right extremism is on the rise in our country. Matthew Feldman again. I think that one of the things that we're starting to see from far-right, or I would prefer the term radical right, because I do think they're radical vis-a-vis -vis the status quo that we have today in Europe, is that they're starting to um, they're starting to really see success. They're starting to really see that many of those push and pull factors that you mentioned, 
terrorism, identity, uh, uh, perhaps people being left behind economically, are the kinds of cards to play. Rather than saying we want to get rid of everybody with non-white faces, it's saying we don't take a position on whether one ethnic group or another is better, it's about competition for resources. So by having that slightly more sophisticated, I would still think it's white paint over asbestos. This is much the same discourse as we've seen for a century. But by making it a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more politically correct, dare I say, I think by talking about things like identity, that has been a very uh, a populist vote winner for a number of these groups. Simon Hicks. So, you know, a lot of excitement about right-wing populism, a lot of research now about the sources of the rise, and it, the research falls into two camps. One camp says that it's mainly about economics, and the other camp says it's mainly about culture or social value change. So the, the economic argument is that we've had economic austerity, cuts in public spending, growing income inequality, growing regional inequality. We've also had globalization, which has led to a decline in manufacturing. And it looks like at least at the local level, if you look at sort of local levels of unemployment or local levels of cuts in public spending or decline in manufacturing locally, that seems to correlate with support for populist right. But, it, but it's difficult to find that evidence at the individual level, so individual voters or individual citizens. There, it, if you're looking at individual level data in public opinion surveys or election studies, it looks like it's cultural values, so people's attitudes towards immigration, attitudes towards gender equality, gay rights, attitudes towards authority or authoritarian values about leadership or, or, this, or how society should be organized. So, there, the argument tends to be that on the cultural side that there, this is a backlash against a growing rise of, of uh, liberal values that elites have and it's about time they've got their comeuppance. I mean, I tend to think of an interaction between these two things that, you know, we, we've seen growing social liberalism among elites and among young people and, and particularly in capital cities. Uh, those values have been the dominant values in society for the last 20 or 30 years. And now that we've seen this economic downturn um, and growing regional economic divides, that's sort of triggered the, the social backlash. And so so I, I think it's difficult to unpack whether it's largely driven by economics or largely driven by culture, but we've definitely seen a, a fundamental shift over the last decade. And um, what do you think, or how do you think this will play out in the European elections? Well, we probably will see the radical right do very well in European elections. So, I mean, the forecasts are saying that we should see between a third and 40% of MEPs coming from populist parties. That's both of the populist right and the populist left. I mean, we, we're, we're seeing in almost every country now across Europe, apart from one or two real exceptions, a rise in support for the populist right. And even in Spain, where we thought the populism was really just on the left, we just saw elections in Andalusia where Vox, a new party on the populist right, gained votes. And this is a, a, a backlash against mainly refugee policies in Spain, but also the debate about Catalan nationalism. And, and so one of the main things that the populist right appeal to is also a national identity and nationalism in the face of globalization or nationalism in the face of, of demands for regionalism or separatism. So, so that's what's driving in Spain, for example. Matteo Salvini is Italy's Deputy Prime Minister and Interior Minister. He's also the leader of the far-right Lega Party, which governs the country in coalition with the populist Five Star Movement. Salvini is described by many as the most powerful man in Italy, and last summer announced the closure of Italian ports to boats carrying migrants. I asked Simon to explain the growing concerns behind his rise to power. Matteo Salvini is considering joining the race to be president of the European Commission. 
and uh, Time magazine recently called him the most feared man in Europe. What's your opinion? Well, Salvini is probably, he's the most feared man by Brussels right now because, you know, you might think that Brexit is a big issue for the EU, but a far bigger issue for the EU is Italy. Uh, you know, Italy, one of the six founding member states, Italy traditionally a member state that had very strong support for European integration. Italy was there at the, the part of the, the single currency. And if you roll back to Italy's efforts to, to join the single currency, uh, Prodi, the then prime minister, introduced a Europe tax and called it a Europe tax. And he said to the Italian people, if you pay the Europe tax, we can pay down our debt. And if by paying down our debt, we can join the single currency. It's almost impossible now to imagine Italians very anti-European. We've seen them fall from being one of the most pro-European countries to one of the most anti-European countries. Big opposition to European integration, big opposition to the euro, big opposition to European refugee policies. And Salvini has really whipped up this opposition to Europe, particularly around both uh, European austerity policies being imposed from Brussels and also European refugee policies. Europe is not helping Italy with refugees as he sees them flooding across the Mediterranean into southern Italy and, and Europe is sort of wiping its hands and saying, Italy, this is your problem. And so Salvini, I think, is a major threat. We have, for the first time in Western Europe, in power in Western Europe, a populist government. We've got populists in power in Hungary and populists in power in Poland, we've seen populist supported governments in Finland and in Denmark, but we've never really had a government just composed of populist parties in Western Europe. So Italy, Five Star Movement and Lega, two populist parties, still very different. Five Star Movement are a strange centrist populist party with some elements from the left, some elements from the right, very anti-establishment, very anti-corruption. Lega are more classically a radical populist right party, anti-immigrant, very nationalist, anti, you know, xenophobic towards foreigners, anti-German and anti-European, and right at the heart of the European Union. This is a big challenge. Marta Lorimer, who focuses on Italy's far right in her research, explained Salvini's appeal. I think Salvini has been an exceptionally intelligent politician, and he has played his cards very well. Um, so when he was voted in, the Lega had 17% of votes, and now they're polling at 30%. And this is largely due to what Salvini has been doing. So, of course, he's been blocking votes. This is, um, I wouldn't say it's been illegal. Um, he's been, this is, he was well within his rights, uh, apparently, to do so. Um, but not only has he done that, he's also been a very, very effective communicator. So he's not only managed to keep his own constituency calm, but he's also been able to take over the voters from Berlusconi's party, from Meloni's party, and part of the Five Star Movement's own voters. He's been all over social media, he has been dominating the agenda with his anti-migrant uh, policies and this has made him extremely popular because he has really come out as a man who stands for what he believes in. In the UK, the anti-Islam activist Stephen Yaxley Lennon, also known as Tommy Robinson, was recently appointed as political advisor to the leader of UKIP. He also became a cause celebre among the international populist right after he was briefly jailed for contempt of court. He currently has more than a million followers on Facebook. I asked Sarah Khan for her view on his rising popularity. 
well, I think that really tells you about the state of affairs in our own country when somebody like Tommy Robinson, a convicted criminal, somebody who has given interviews saying he doesn't even really care. If he morally thinks what he believes is correct, he doesn't even care what the law of our country says. Um, you know, he, how he's peddled wholesale anti-Muslim hatred and prejudice. That somebody like him, his views can become so widely accepted. That's really telling us that this is a much wider problem and deep-rooted in our, in our country um, than perhaps we're acknowledging. How a lot of people who perhaps, you know, you know I, I know a lot of people, for example, I've spoken to a lot of activists who, um, people who were traditionally on the left, who now find actually some of the views that Tom Robinson is, is spouting very attractive, or they are sympathetic to it. That's telling us that I think we are, we're not winning the battle of ideas. And there is a battle, that's, in my view, I think that's what extremism is so much about. It is about a battle of ideas. It's about what kind of society, uh, inclusive society, do we want to create? Are we, we losing that fundamental notion of what our society should look like? And I think we are, because the fact that people <clears throat> who now find Tommy Robinson's view is very attractive or, or sympathetic to it, is really telling us a much more grim picture of some of the attitudes in our country. I asked Matthew Feldman if Tommy Robinson's remarkable rise means that the UK is leading the way in the resurgence of nationalism and right-wing populism. It's a great question. Um, there's two, and I think it's an important question, I think there's two things that the UK has led in historically in terms of there have all the time been fascist or radical right ideologues. Two tactics that Britain has, has, has sort of been innovative in is if you go back 30 years, it's the so-called blood and honor and neo-Nazi music scene. That was something that was really pioneered in the late 80s or early 90s in Britain and has since branched out to the United States, North America, uh, Central and Northern Europe. So that's something that in a sense, when we think of skinheads, and I think some of this is mistaken because there are left-wing skinheads as well, but the boots, the braces, uh, uh, the Sig Heiling, a lot of that derived from Britain. The second thing that we didn't necessarily see before it came along in Britain were these street-based groups. Now, I need to clarify, of course, street-based groups or paramilitary groups were bread and butter for fascism going back to the 1910s, let alone the 1920s. But at the same time, groups that see themselves as not revolutionary, um, as not wearing all the same uniform and not necessarily even engaging in the kind of uh, paramilitary violence that we've seen from the squadristi or the brown shirts of, of, in past was something that was really pioneered by Stephen Yaxley Lennon. It started locally. It started in Luton over local issues. And the idea that you could get in large measure, but not only, football hooligans, members from different firms coming together um, and talking about an issue on the street. He's the first figure in Britain, I think, um, going back decades, maybe even since Oswald Mosley, where there's real immediate name brand recognition around the world. Now, what will that mean? Certainly, try to go on a speaking tour of America. He's been trying to uh, uh, bring in uh, small and big donors, and he's had mixed success with those things. Certainly, it's enriched him. But whether or not there's going to see a transformation of the radical right's fortunes remains to be seen. Many of Tommy Robinson's core supporters are drawn from the EDL, the English Defence League, and the DFLA, the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, both far-right anti-Muslim movements. The DFLA has recently developed close links to UKIP. The scene that's now kind of uh, the, the, the new street protest or, or far-right marching group is the DFLA. And as you mentioned, one of the potentially largest 
uh, changes that we've seen in the landscape for, for a decade or, or nearly since the, the kind of implosion of the BNP has precisely been Gerald Batten from UKIP speaking to the DFLA in September in Sunderland. And that, the bringing together of the party political and the street-based wings, hadn't really happened. They'd been coexisting, and the idea that there will be a, a mix or, or, or a congealing of those two, potentially around Brexit, but not only, um, is to me something that could really see the apple cart upturned in a way that is all unexpected and, and, and perhaps not very good for the, those liberal institutions we've been talking about. But that is very, very recent and is a, a, a new development, in fact. I mean, you said that um, uh, Tommy, Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley-Lennon has been enriched by this. So is there a lot of money behind him? I mean, where's that coming from? Yeah, I think Hope Not Hate has done some good work. And, and certainly some of the donors are big money um, anti-Muslim donors in America, the Pamela Gellers of the world, for example, the Freedom uh, Defense Initiatives of the world. Matthew is referring here to the anti-fascist group Hope Not Hate, which has found financial links between Tommy Robinson and U.S. far-right activists. But to come back to name-brand recognition, which is what you need, of course, to secure these donations, they don't give big pots of money to nobody. Um, there was a very interesting story in the Washington Post. This was around the time of the so-called Free Tommy uh, protests, where, again, uh, for your listeners who might not be familiar, he was uh, um, charged with contempt of court for revealing details of an ongoing case. Um, and what was so interesting to me was looking at this story of neo-Nazis, and I'm absolutely not suggesting Tommy Robinson's a neo-Nazi, um, but a story about neo-Nazis in rural Pennsylvania. And there, just below the National Social Socialist Movement banner was Free Tommy Robinson in the outback of beyond in Pennsylvania. And I think that it's the appeal beyond his normal constituency, British uh, kind of working class football hooliganism uh, that we saw from the EDL, to the outbacks of a neo-Nazi group in rural Pennsylvania was absolutely striking to me. And I think the fact that the, the messaging, very different messaging from those two types of groups, your EDL and your, let's say, National Socialist Movement, if you can bring those two groups together around threatened white identity, around unacceptable demographic change, or the conspiracy theories of uh, the great replacement and what have you, that is very powerful and, dare I say, even seductive stuff. And that's, I think, like what we said about UKIP and, and the DFLA, when there's a kind of congealing around those themes, I think that's the, the bit where a number of analysts would say we're into very dangerous territory. Finally, I asked our experts if we should fear the rise of the far right. Here's Marta Lorimer. It depends on who you are. I would say if you are a liberal living in a big city um, and you consider yourself as broadly belonging to the elite, maybe you might be worried about them. If you're a minority, you're probably not really going to feel confident around them. However, if you think that you're someone whose voice hasn't been heard for many, many years, then maybe having someone who's representing your ideas will make you feel like democratic process is also working for you. So I would say it has a lot to do with who you are and what you think. Matthew Feldman. It is the outgroups. It is the people who are seen to be different because if the radical right is about one thing, it's about homogeneity. It's about we are all going to be the same. We're going to have the same language. We're going to look the same. And so difference is threat. So the first thing I would suggest is, while I say it's not an existential fear, it's easy for me to say as a white man, first thing. 
Um, the second point is, if you are a citizen who's paying attention or subject who's paying attention, yeah, there are causes for fear. The, it just keeps getting better and better for the radical right, whether it's conditions, whether it is their success, whether it's the way in which sometimes the media treats them. And then, oh, what did Donald Trump say now? Let's cover that. I'm not convinced that's helpful, but I understand the media is what it is. Sometimes I, I know that by objecting, it's like a fisherman shaking his fist at the sea. The, all those things being said, no, I don't think that we're in an existential concern. Yes, I think that people who are concerned about the health, uh, about the political immunology of liberal institutions are right to be concerned. I don't think that we're beyond the point of no return, but I do think that some genuine thinking, especially across ideological frontiers between, for example, centrist and the left wing, to real thinking about where we can, nobody's asking one group to give up their political views for another, but to say we can come together and agree that the radical right poses a danger to all of us and that we need to think about how we can counter their message. Sarah Khan. I think we should be very concerned about the fact that we are now seeing a new wave of far-right extremism in this country um, and we should be concerned about whether we have a good understanding of it, we have a good understanding of what's driving it, the scale of it, whether we understand um, the harm it's causing on our country and crucially whether we are doing enough to counter it. I, my main concern is yes there is a rise. Um, I don't like the word fear. I think you know we're, we're, we're a country that believes in keeping calm and carrying on and I think my view is yes we have to acknowledge and understand the growing problem of the far right but we need to build our understanding about it and also and our understanding of how best to counter it and then to ensure that we develop enough of a civil society response to counter extremism effectively. And finally, Simon Hicks, who refers here to Viktor Orban, Hungary's far-right prime minister. It's a little too early to tell. I think um, if in a decade's time, I think there's two possibilities. So one possibility is we'll look back and mainstream parties have responded and we have higher taxes and higher public spending and more spending on infrastructure and more appreciation of different groups in society that have been left behind by globalization and a sensitivity to the fact that people have different values and it's okay to have different values and different groups in society might have different values and, and that's okay and we can exist as a society if we have a conversation about these things. Then I think we will probably see the gradual decline of these populist forces and it may have reinvigorated democracy in a sense. So democracy is meant to, the way I think about democracy is the main purpose of democracy is as a safety valve. If there are really deep structural problems in society or the economy, this should occur in elections. We should see this in elections. It should be a cry for help that we see. And so in a sense, the rise of the populace is a response to some real things that have happened. If on the other hand, so that would be a kind of more optimistic narrative, a more pessimistic narrative would see that these populists actually really don't like democracy. What they want to do is come to power and start to erode democratic institutions, reduce the power of courts, reduce freedom of the press, roll back some of the social freedoms that, that have moved forward. For example, this week we saw the Central European University in, in Budapest essentially be kicked out of Budapest and moved to Vienna because Orban doesn't like them. He sees them as foreign interests in his country, funded by Soros, and he hates Soros. 
We've seen the Polish uh, populist government constraining courts, pressure on the media in Poland. Uh, we're seeing Lega in Italy with some pretty strong rhetoric against the liberal institutions and liberal media. Uh, so we, I could equally imagine a situation where populists come to power in different places and some of the liberal institutions and liberal values that we've taken for granted have been seriously eroded. And that would be a worry and that I would definitely fear. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Joanna Bale, Tom Williams, Ollie Johnson and Jess Winterstein. It was based in part on the following research. The Rise and Fall of Social Democracy, 1918 to 2017, by Giacomo Benedetto and Simon Hicks. Ni droite ni gauche francais, far-right populism and the future of left-right politics by Marta Lorimer in the book Trumping the Mainstream, The Conquest of Domestic Politics by the Populist Radical Right by Lisa Esther Herman and James Muldoon. Ezra Pound's Fascist Propaganda, 1935-1945 by Matthew Feldman. Understanding the Alt-Right by Matthew Feldman and Rob May in the book Post-Digital Cultures of the Far-Right edited by Malk Felitz and Nick Thurston, and The Battle for British Islam, Reclaiming Muslim Identity from Extremism, by Sarah Khan and Tony McMahon. Next month, we ask the question, how does the modern world shape our personal relationships? <laughs>